in this Advent season, because the texts that typically go with Advent are about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, not as a baby in the manger of Bethlehem, but as Lord of heaven and earth, we are just carrying on then with the series that we were following before Advent started in the letters to the church at Revelation. This morning I'm gonna be looking at the church in Philadelphia, reading from Revelation 3, verses seven to 13. Next Sunday, Pastor Matt from Covenant Christian Reformed Church in Calgary is going to be here preaching on Laodicea, and I will be there preaching on Philadelphia. So we're just doing a bit of an exchange as we kind of gear up and go into this very, very unusual Advent and holiday season. So for today, our scripture reading is Revelation chapter three, verses seven through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens, and no one will shut, who shuts, and no one will open. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> so in this series that we have been pursuing from the book of Revelation, we come this week to Jesus' letter to the church at Philadelphia. Philadelphia, of course, means brotherly love. Um, it's a Greek term, just combination of two, phila um, from phileo and delphia. It's just brotherly love. The second to the last of the churches in this series of seven, and only the second of the churches in which Jesus finds no fault with the church, which is simply to say, not that they were sinlessly perfect or anything of the kind, but there was nothing going on at Philadelphia in the days when Jesus gave this letter to them that required reproof from the Lord of the church. Now other than that, the format of all of these letters is the same. There's an introduction from Jesus and then he goes on to give his message. And it makes sense that it would be because Jesus had commanded John in Revelation chapter one saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And in verse seven of our text, he reiterated that point. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. 
Now, early on in this series, we talked a little bit about the inspiration of Scripture, and we believe that all Scripture is inspired by God. It is God-breathed. And all of God's word from Genesis 1-1 to the very end of the book of Revelation is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that as people of God, we may be thoroughly furnished for every good work. So I don't wanna make any particular distinctions in that. But having said that, we have some different ideas about how scripture was inspired. We know that holy men of God were moved by the Holy Spirit, carried along as they wrote down the very words that God wanted to give to his people. But in these letters, in the early chapters of the book of Revelation, John is really just serving as a scribe. We often make the point that inspiration is not the same as dictation. It's not that you know, Moses or Luke or any of the other authors of scripture were sitting there at their desk and God was speaking those words into their ears and they were just writing them down. <clears throat> In our series on Luke, we saw Luke did research and looked into the life and the history of what had happened with Jesus in order to write this book. But here, Jesus is actually dictating to John, write the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. These are in a very special sense, the very words of Christ himself, delivered to the angel of the church at Philadelphia <clears throat> and to all of the others through John and through the angels of the churches, the ministers or pastors of the churches to the churches themselves. So these words are in fact the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. And we need to make note, because this is significant. In each letter that Jesus addressed to the various churches in Revelation, he refers back to that vision of himself that John had in chapter one, and he highlights some aspect of that vision to emphasize something about his person and character that will speak to the very promises that he is gonna make to the particular church. So going all the way back to where we started, to Ephesus, for example, Jesus identified himself in Revelation 2, verse one, as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And then he goes on to speak to them to actually give them some commendation for being faithful and for standing firm, and then to chide them, say, <coughs> saying, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first, for if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And it's not hard to see the connection between the way that Jesus identifies himself in the address and this promise, which may carry a little bit more of the aspect of a threat in this case, but it's a promise. Jesus is saying, I'm the one who holds the stars, the leadership of the church in my hand, and I walk among the lampstands which are the churches. 
So if I tell you that I can come and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent, believe me, I have the power and the authority to be able to do that. In today's text as well, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Now it's gonna become clear shortly just how this applies to the promise, but some background is necessary for us to get from where we are to there. I remember a long time ago in a study of the book of Revelation, someone said or someone wrote, I, I can't remember, it's been a while, that we ought to read the book of Revelation with the Bible open and today's newspaper open right beside it as if somehow the prophecies of Revelation were going to find direct fulfillment in the headlines of the 1970s. And there were plenty of books, some of us are old enough to remember them, that basically made exactly that claim. They came, they were bestsellers, people read them, got all scared, and, and I could tell you stories, but I'm not going to. Um, they thought that the apocalypse was unfolding before their very eyes. People thought that Henry Kissinger, Secretary of the United of State of the US, was actually the beast of Revelation chapter 13, and they said it out loud from pulpits, and they discredited God's word when none of that actually happened. And we might assume then that the whole method might be more than a little bit suspect. We don't need to read Revelation with the newspaper open beside us. We need to read Revelation, if you'll pardon my saying this, with the Bible, the whole Bible, open beside it. We need to understand that if we are going to get to the heart of what is being said in Revelation, then it needs to be read against the backdrop of the Old Covenant prophets. I would go out on a limb and say, if you have never read Zechariah, you're gonna struggle with Revelation because they speak to very much the same ideas. And the book of Isaiah as well. Case in point, the name Jesus claims for himself here in Revelation 3, verse 7, the Holy One, is a name that throughout the book of Isaiah is applied very specifically to Yahweh, to God. 27 times in the book of Isaiah, the prophet speaks of the Holy One, or the Holy One himself speaks of himself as the Holy One. So a careful reader of the book of Revelation and one that was at least a little familiar with Isaiah would come to the conclusion that in claiming this name with Jesus saying the words of the Holy One, Jesus is identifying himself to the church at Philadelphia as one with the Father. Saying in effect, these are the words of God. What I am saying to you through John, this is the word of the Lord God. And it puts force behind the promises that he's about to speak in this letter, just like in the Heidelberg Catechism, where we are taught to say, I trust God so much that I do not doubt that he will provide whatever I need for body and soul and he will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this sad world, even COVID-19, that's in a, a footnote of the Heidelberg. 
He will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this sad world. But listen to the, the way the catechism goes after that. He is able to do this because he is almighty God. And he desires to do this because he is a faithful father. So if Jesus promises in these letters to the churches in Revelation, we could just as easily say he is able to do this because he is the Holy One, because he is Almighty God. And as Isaiah pointed out, our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of hosts, is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. And Jesus identifies himself in that way. So a little sidebar here, just a little you know, free information. Anyone who tries to tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God, and there are lots of so-called Christians out there who will try to tell you that. Anyone who tries to tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God is in some sense kidding himself, to put it very charitably. Jesus is God. Jesus is God, and not only is he God, because he is God, he is also described here as the true one. He is, in fact, as he claimed in John chapter 16, verse 6, the truth. Remember, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the Holy One. He is the true one. He can be fully trusted because he is God, and God always keeps his promises. You may have heard me say that before. God always keeps his promises. He always has, and he always will. But wait, there's more. Jesus is also the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Now this is a slight variation from the vision in Revelation chapter one where he described himself as having the keys of death and Hades. But we'll see a little later on that the variation is there to make a very particular point. And then we are told that this one, Jesus, the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open, goes on to speak words of promise to a struggling and persecuted church. I know your works, he says. Now that might be a little scary because if you think about the first time this letter was ever read in the church at Philadelphia, it was read in sequence with all of the other letters that Jesus had given to the churches in chapter two and chapter three. So in the church immediately preceding them in Sardis, Jesus said, I know your works, that you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And maybe the people at Philadelphia are sort of like, uh-oh, <laughs> he knows our works. But in this case, he does not reprove or rebuke. He simply says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. And he did this, 
he set this door before them because of the nature of their works. He said, I know that you have but little power. You're not very strong. We maybe think of that passage where Paul said, not many mighty or wise or powerful or rich. And Jesus says to the church at Philadelphia, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name, which is remarkable because while Philadelphia means, as we saw, brotherly love, it's pretty clear that the residents of Philadelphia were not particularly loving to this little gathering of God's people. And that makes a certain amount of sense. If you think of what we talked about last Sunday, that the church is engaged in a strategic level of cosmic spiritual warfare, then you might think of local churches as little forts or little outposts of the kingdom of God in a very hostile world. So probably the people of Philadelphia weren't that surprised that those around them were not particularly loving. If the world loves the church, there is something really, really wrong. Jesus said, don't, don't be amazed. If they hate you, they hated me first. Don't be surprised if you suffer persecution for the sake of the name. Paul says, all who want to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But in the earliest days of the church, persecution came primarily from Old Covenant Israel. This comes as a little surprise to some people. We've sort of conditioned ourselves to think of persecution as happening at the hands of the Romans. It did, but not till later on. In the earliest days, persecution of the church came from Old Covenant Israel. You might remember Stephen being tried before the Sanhedrin and then stoned because he was proclaiming Christ as Lord. You might remember that Saul, who was later called Paul, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as he describes himself in Philippians chapter three, was on his way to Damascus, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Paul describes himself in Philippians three, concerning zeal, you wanna know how zealous I was, he says? As a Jew, as a Hebrew of the Hebrews, I persecuted the church. And Jesus had predicted this, John chapter 16, verse two. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God. Jesus made clear to his disciples, I'm sending you out like sheep in the midst of wolves. I'm sending you into a hostile world where the message that you are proclaiming is not gonna be particularly well received by a lot of people. And in the earliest days of the church, that persecution came from Old Covenant Israel. Now at the time that Revelation is being written, that's about to change. The Roman Empire is about to take center stage as the great persecutor of the church and that's gonna escalate things. Things are gonna become far worse, but in Philadelphia, that hasn't happened yet. So far, they have been put out of the synagogue. 
And we might well assume that families have been torn apart in this. Jesus said he didn't come to bring peace, he came to bring a sword. He came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And so they were put out of the synagogue, the door of the synagogue, that traditional place of worship for most of these early Christians had been closed. And see how this all starts to come together in the way that Jesus addresses them. That door had been closed but the Lord who set before them an open door that no one can close goes on saying, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. See, when Jesus said that his followers would be put out of the synagogues, he went on to say in that same passage, they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. They're gonna put you out of the synagogue because you are proclaiming me, Christ, as Lord and as the one way to the Father and since they do not know me, they do not know my Father either. As pastor and author Douglas Wilson wrote, put bluntly, if you have the covenant of God, but you do not have God himself, then what you actually have is Satan. Hence the term, synagogue of Satan. And another little sidebar here, more free information for those who are interested. Please notice that self-identification does not equal identity. This is an important lesson for us to learn these days when there are so many who call themselves Christians. But it's not self-identification that adds up to identity. The synagogue in question is filled with people who say that they are Jews. But what they say doesn't matter. What matters is what the Lord says. The king of the Jews gets to decide who the real Jews are. And not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, as Paul said in Romans 9, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Who are the real Jews, the real people of God, the, the new Israel? Well, in fact, Paul said in Galatians chapter three, if you are Christ's, if you belong to Christ in the NIV, then, regardless of your ethnic background, regardless of being Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, it doesn't matter if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. You are Abraham's offspring. If you trust in Christ Jesus as your savior, heirs according to the promise. But of those who closed the door to the Christians at Philadelphia, the one who can open and no one can shut says, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. That's one of those allusions to the book of Isaiah that we don't have time to go into in any great depth, but maybe someday. And he continues, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. Remember what he said, I know your works. You have kept my word and have not denied my name. Because you have kept my word, about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. 
And at some point soon in this series, we're gonna have to deal with the sense in which the word earth is used here in the book of Revelation. Um, those who dwell on the land might be a better way to understand it, but again, we just don't have time this morning. But simply realize this is a promise of blessing. Jesus comes to this struggling, persecuted church, and he says, I will keep you from the hour of trial. And then he attaches it to, I am coming soon, which is just one more proof among many that this book focuses primarily on things that were happening in the first century. Real people, just like you and me, real people in a real church almost 2,000 years ago were suffering. They were being persecuted, they were suffering, they were struggling as one commentator has written, does it make sense? Hear this question. Does it make sense that Christ would promise the church in Philadelphia almost 2,000 years ago protection from something that was gonna happen thousands of years later? As if he were saying, be of good cheer, you faithful suffering Christians of first century Asia Minor, I won't let those Soviet missiles and killer bees of the 20th century get to you. I will keep you from that hour of trial. And the answer is no, it doesn't. Jesus was speaking to real people in a real time and place about the persecution that they were suffering right there and then. He was not trying to comfort them with promises of an event that would happen at least 2,000 years after they were dead and gone. He comforts them in the context of their own time and he encourages them with words that would be sensible to them. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And we'll talk more about that. I am coming soon as we go along. It's important. But notice even the promise here. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I wonder, do we hear this? Genuinely hear this as a promise. If Jesus, and this is simplistic, forgive me, but if Jesus came up here and said, you know what, we've tested everybody in the building, nobody in the building has COVID-19, so the best way to never catch it is don't leave. Just stay here. Stay here gathered as my people in the temple of God because the temple of God, as we learn in all through the New Testament, is the church of Jesus Christ. It's described in 1 Timothy as a pillar and buttress or pillar and foundation of the truth. So this open door that no one can shut, the promise of Jesus to a people who had been tried and tested with official persecution, religious discrimination, social ostracism, and economic boycotts, is that Christ has opened the door for the church and has granted the church the royal privilege of fellowship with God as priests and kings. If you think about it in this light, then Jesus is literally promising what the psalmist so longed for. How do we end that psalm, that psalm that we read to comfort people? 
in all of the various distresses of life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord once a week for a couple hours. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And as often as we have spoken those words of comfort, as often as some of us have stood in church singing, better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. I love that song. I love the message. (laughs) Better is one day in your courts. The courts referring, of course, in the Psalms to the temple. The temple, of course, referring in New Testament times to the church of Jesus Christ. So we stand and we sing that. Better is one day worshiping the Lord among the people of God than thousands. I think you need at least six years to come up with thousands, plural, of all of the other things that we so much like to do. So we sing the song, but I wonder if we believe it. I will make him, I will make you, says Jesus, a pillar in the temple of my God. The pillars in Solomon's temple were massive. They were the last things to be carried away when the exile came because they were so huge. Nobody knew quite what to do with them. And when they were being made, I believe it says they didn't even keep track of how much bronze went into those things because it was more than anybody could keep track of. They were huge, fixed pillars and they were there to the very end. And Jesus says, I will make you pillar in the temple of my God and you will not go out anymore. I will grant you eternal access to the real temple. I will open a door that no one can close. I will claim you as my very own precious possession, the one who conquers. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. This, by the way, is exactly how they would be kept from the hour of trial that was coming. Not by being removed, but by being sealed with the name of the living God. We will see in Revelation 7 when judgment is just about to be released on the land, an angel cries out saying, do not harm the earth or the tree or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And then we find out just a few chapters later later, that this seal consists of Jesus' name and his father's name just as he had promised the saints in Philadelphia, I will write on him. The one who overcomes, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, and my own new name. In other words, he will belong to me. Body and soul in life and in death. And just one more thing. This reference to the key of David takes us back to Isaiah chapter 22 and to a story about a steward. His name was Shebna, who thought to make a tomb in Jerusalem when Jerusalem was about to go into exile. He carved this big elaborate tomb, if I'm not mistaken. The the sort of engraving that was over the top of the tomb actually sits in the British Museum. He thought to do that as if by carving his name in stone, somehow he could avert 
the promise that God has made that no, your, your people are going into exile. To him the prophet said, behold the Lord will hurl you away violently. You can carve your own name in stone, Shebna, it doesn't matter. Oh, you strong man, he will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die. And there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office and you will be pulled down from your station. But then the promise. In that day, God says, when I do that to Shebna, in that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. See, all these things that just surprise us in the book of Revelation are actually found in the Old Covenant prophets where God speaks of his plans for his people. And of course, in all of this, in Isaiah, Eliakim was serving as a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Eliakim was just a man, and one day he would die and pass from the stage like an actor who had finished his scene. But Jesus Christ, the Holy One, the true one would not only be given the keys or the key of David, the keys of the kingdom, he would be given the keys of death and Hades itself and they will never be taken from him. He has risen victoriously over death and hell. He has conquered the grave. He is our Passover. He is our priest, he is king of kings and lord of lords, and he shall reign forever and ever. You may have heard that part in another Christmas song. But this morning we're gonna sing, O come, O key of David, come. Come, you who opens and no one can shut, who shuts and no one can open. Come, O key of David, come and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe for us the heavenward road and bar the way to death's abode. Did you ever realize Christmas song with lyrics drawn from Isaiah 22 and Revelation chapter three? And he will set before those who trust in him an open door that no one can close. And he will write upon us the Father's name and his own name and the name of the city of God which is coming down out of heaven from God if you want to know what that means, the very last verse of the book of the prophet Ezekiel tells us the name of that city is Yahweh Samah. The Lord is there. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, as we are going to sing in just a moment, Lord Jesus, come, O key of David, come and open wide our heavenly home, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>